1: I am your host, Vic Jarami, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. I have two guests on the show today. First, I chat with Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell from LA's 13th District followed by Councilmember Bob Blumenfield from District 3, right here in the San Fernando Valley. Councilmember Mitchell Farrell has represented the 13th District of Los Angeles since 2013, which includes the neighborhoods of Atwater Village, East Hollywood, Hollywood, Larchmont Village, Little Armenia, Silver Lake, and several more mitch helped lead the city's response to covid 19 including the establishment of the largest rental relief program in the country providing over 1 million in direct grants to small businesses and theaters in the 13th district mitch has successfully worked with state and county partners to bring billions of dollars in funding to address the city's homelessness crisis in 2017 he also spearheaded the city's efforts to replace Columbus Day with Indigenous Peoples Day. Most recently, Mitch secured the permanent installation of the All Black Lives Matter decorative design on Hollywood Boulevard at Highland Avenue, which serves as a tribute to the historic march that elevated the voices of transgender and queer people of color. So Mitch, uh, congrats on a successful campaign so far. This is your Uh, Because of term limits, this is your third and last time you're going to run for uh, L.A. City Council. Yes. Um, How do you feel as things are uh, now? I feel really
0: good because we have set the table, so to speak, for so many great things to come to fruition in this third term. We've laid the groundwork for the Hollywood Walk of Fame master plan. Uh, We have our Armenian gateway under construction, and it will be dedicated this calendar year. We have streetscapes uh, that we've completed, but more coming in in historically neglected parts of the district. We have traffic safety measures that are coming in. We've got the Los Angeles River Master Plan and uh, the creation of a revenue stream for infrastructure and habitat restoration coming in. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are envisioning the future of the Silver Lake Reservoir Complex with the community. Uh, And we have so many of these processes in place, not to mention policy, uh, leading the way in the city to get the city of Los Angeles to 100% carbon free energy by 2035. Uh, And the next handful of years are going to be critical. To ensure that we achieve that target and it really is a moral and climate imperative that we do so. So those are just some of the things that I'm excited about. We have a record of getting things done, uh, a good track record, so we're making the case. I'm meeting new voters from the new parts of the district after redistricting and it's exciting. Um, we're jazzed, we're ready, and we're, we're bringing it all forward.
1: That's a, that's a lot. That's a lot of accomplishments and a lot of uh... Uh, Very ambitious agenda. What do you think uh, has been uh, some of your highlights in the last, uh, what, since 2013, I want to say?
0: Right, right. Um, I'll work my way backwards. So just last Monday, we dedicated a new bridge uh, in Elysian Valley, and it's the Taylor Yard Bridge. I've worked on that bridge since 2003 when I was on the staff of my predecessor. Uh, And when I was a council member, a new council member back in 2013, we really began putting the building blocks in place to lead to last Monday. And it's a multimodal bridge, beautifully designed by some incredible architects and and engineers. And it's my third bridge across the Los Angeles River in my district that I've worked on. Uh, And so that's an incredible achievement when you can build a bridge across a river. Uh, That's a pretty, pretty big deal, and I couldn't be more proud, and it connects two communities, Cypress Park on the north side, uh, which is in Council District 1, and then Elysian Valley on the opposite side, which is in the 13th, so we're literally connecting communities, literally bridging divides, so I love the symbolism of that, Uh, and we're connecting people to the state park that was dedicated about 20 years ago, Um, and then uh, more recently, my gosh, uh, some of our successes. So we adopted and approved uh, the LA 100 uh, master plan several months back. And now I'm just triggering all of the instructions to make that happen. Uh, That followed, uh, what followed on the heels of that was our uh, electric vehicle master plan. We're gonna electrify the entire city fleet, including service vehicles. So that'll happen in my next term. So we're well underway uh, for that. Um, And then, you know, I I can go back to the very beginning in 2013 and see if I can fill in some blanks. Um, When I was a new council member, I chaired the Arts Parks Committee. And Mm -hmm. at that time, two things were dead in the water. The city no longer had any revenue whatsoever from what was called the Arts Development Fee because a a legal decision had been that um, we couldn't any longer collect funding from new development projects to go into the uh, development and creation of public art. Mm -hmm. I revived that and since then, the city has received millions and millions of dollars, probably tens of millions of dollars. So we're painting murals, we're building sculptures, we're we're doing things like the Armenian gateway uh, and the, the historic Filipino town gateway, which is under construction. So that was one of my first real achievements was reviving the arts development fee, along with the arts, we also, something else that was dead in the water was our mural ordinance. I revived that as well in 2014. And that's why so many murals have popped up since then across the city. And they automatically come with a requirement of anti-graffiti coding. So we kind of take care of that as well. Um,
1: And murals uh, are such a big part of sort of Americana, but Angelino culture and our, and our myth mythology and uh, art as we know it now.
0: It's true. Los Angeles has historically been a city of murals. And if you look at the historical record, there's going to be about a 10-year gap from around you know, 2005 to around 2013, where not much was happening in LA. But since then, there's been an explosion. So we'll keep that going as well. And just other other things we've been working on. I mean, I eliminated Columbus Day and created Indigenous Peoples Day. That was one of my crowning achievements and uh, being of Native American heritage, that was really, really important. So, um, so many things, affordable housing policy. um, I put in a requirement that when we build affordable housing, it has to have a 55 year covenant at minimum instead of 35 years. That's something I did in my first term. Um, And then COVID protections, Um, I took a particular leadership role when COVID, the pandemic hit, and I created funding for renters, subsidies, subsidies for small businesses in the 13th, and then the subsidy that I created for renters in the 13th, we took it citywide, and we used federal and state funding instead of just my own discretionary funding. So we're going to come out out of the pandemic stronger in the city than in other places because we had the strongest protections in the united states and it was an emphasis of protecting renters and keeping renters from becoming evicted and we successfully did that and that leadership came out of my office so it was the collaboration of my colleagues but that's something i really leaned in on
1: yeah this is the blunt post with vic on kpfk 90.7 fm i am your host Vic rami and you are listening to my interview with L.A. Councilmember Mitchell Farrell. The the changing Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day is just, uh, I mean, it was a great achievement and a great uh, action that you undertook. But then when you think about it, you think, why did we even have that? Why wasn't that changed like decades ago? Um,
0: exactly.
1: So at least we're trying to remedy that now and sort of really undo all the damage. Um, I want to ask you, so what do you think? I mean, you know, I'm familiar with a lot of you know, what you do, and uh, some read a lot and some don't. And uh, because of that, they're, they're, some people are just not informed. What do you think is like the, mo- the biggest misconception about not you as a person, not your personally, but uh, about the work you've done? What project do you think is the, the, the most um, maybe uh, didn't get enough attention? Uh, that the public may not know as much about?
0: That's a great question, Vic. Uh, and I'm really glad you asked it because mm-hmm. um, people who don't know, people who maybe only look at Twitter for their news or social media to find out things in LA, uh, some have this belief that I only build luxury housing or that I'm in the pocket of developers. But what they don't understand is that outside of downtown Los Angeles, literally no one else has built more affordable housing. And I do mean covenanted low income housing mm-hmm. across my district. And so when people see new, uh, you know, maybe they think they're fancy buildings or, or uh, ornate buildings in Hollywood, what they don't realize is that almost all of those buildings have very low income units mixed in and it's called oh. mixed income, uh, mixed use developments. Yes. So, so we've done that and I've negotiated all that, uh, over 2000 and counting. And in Hollywood alone right now, 44.9% of all housing construction, and it's a lot of units, it's, it's well over six 700 units yeah. under construction, nearly half is covenanted low income. Meaning uh, if you're a family and your house, your average uh, household income, say it's $30,000 below half of median income, you do not pay more than one third of that for rent all year, no matter what apartment you have, you might have a one, two, or three bedroom apartment. You're not going to pay more than a thousand dollars a month for rent. And so we've really succeeded in the production overall as a city we need to build a lot more, but I have led the charge that have been fearless in fighting for that in my district. And then secondly, I'll say the production of permanent and, and um, transitional housing for people experiencing homelessness. We've stood up so much in my district, the whole spectrum, safe parking, safe sleeping, tiny cabin communities, uh, a, a bridge home projects. And then permanent supportive housing projects. I have a campus under construction right now that's going to be 454 units of homes for people who are formerly unhoused. Wow. There's nothing else like that in the city and that's under construction right now in my district.
1: And what city is that in?
0: Uh, it is in the West Lake area uh, right off of Beverly and that's okay. uh, a ground broke for that some months ago. We're building a whole campus and That's That's because I work with these project teams and uh, we, you know, we stand this up because it's it's, it's really the issue of the day is homelessness and the lack of affordable housing.
1: And also people need to realize, I mean, it's really basic stuff is builders, you know, you can't just get all builders to come in and buy and and build nothing but affordable housing because there are businesses and they also you know, they have to make a profit as well. So there has to be a middle ground, which is what you've done, which is a mix of affordable units with, with just standard, you know, market rate, exactly. um, so that you can really bring this, these investments into the city. But on top of that, even as a, as a residue for lack of a better term, even if you build a lot of new buildings and developments, Eventually, that brings down the rent overall because there's more competition. Even if the building happened not to have affordable units, which pretty much all of them do now, so we really have to be uh, we we can't we can't just think that you know they're benevolent people all over you know all over the world all over the country that are just going to come and buy uh, build 100% affordable units and that be it. We really have to work and. Uh, sort of meet them halfway Um, it's we didn't get to where we are within a year or two or five or 10 (laughs) we're definitely not going to solve all of this um, overnight so
0: yeah I I couldn't have said it better myself I I think that uh, for some reason there's this sort of uh, division um, ethos out there Uh, and I think it's it can be really damaging and people buy into these tropes, right? That all developers are bad, even if you're even if you are an affordable housing developer, but somehow you're bad. Well, just think about what inspires people in their careers. I know people who are giving who are devoting their professional life toward building housing for people who are who are unhoused, for building housing for people, for families that struggle and have a limited income. So I don't buy into those tropes and no one else should. And if you think about it, we're, we're the second largest city in the United States and everyone, every last one of us live in a development that was built at one time or another. Right. And so it's, it's up to elected officials like myself to hold developers accountable. And I do. I'm very demanding. And so it really is about relationship building and consensus building. And if if a project proposal that is affordable housing or permanent housing for people who are unhoused coming into a neighborhood and some of the neighbors get upset about it and don't want it, well, guess what I do? I dialogue with those neighbors and, and talk to people and Describe the merits and I make commitments to them on how a property will be managed, how it will be maintained and I give reassurances to folks and then. I hold myself accountable to those reassurances. so we have successes all over the district. Yeah. Where people have been a little reluctant or afraid or even opposed to certain things and uh, we have successfully implemented them and they are then more broadly accepted once up and
1: functioning? I'm just usually fascinated, and we can move on from this topic, but fascinated by people who are just anti-development altogether and think, what do they think? What, what do you think happens after 10, 15, 20 years when there's no development? Everything runs down. We don't want to, and not to, not to um, blame Cuba, but look at Cuba. For whatever reason, they haven't had development since the 50s. And so it's just about managed growth manage growth, which is what you are doing, um, so that cities can stay uh, modern and, uh, you know, convenient and, uh, you know, keep up with the demand. I mean, people want to live in Hollywood.
0: Exactly, this is a vibrant city and vibrant cities evolve into the future. It's all how we do that.
1: Yeah. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I am your host, Vic Rami, and you are listening to my interview with L.A. Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell. In terms of this post, I'm hoping that it's post-COVID recovery now. Me too. You know, we've said that before, but then we've kind of reverted back to. Um, what are some of the challenges that um, your district is facing going into this, hopefully this phase with small businesses and uh, just residents and all of that? Uh, and what are some of your plans or initiatives for that? So
0: that's another great question. Uh, businesses are struggling to find enough of the workforce so that they can function to their full scale, especially restaurants, hospitality industry. It, it, in a way, that's not a bad thing because workers can demand more of their employers, right? Yeah. And, and so that that's a good problem to have. Um, but I'm hopeful that as we come out of this pandemic, that businesses uh, can flourish. Again, they're ready to, but some, there's a, there's a real issue with uh, uh, staffing at the moment. It's just a very real, the unemployment rate's low, and uh, again, another wonderful problem to have, uh, but we need to, our businesses are poised for a real strong comeback. They just need to find the workers, and, and so that's important for that. Um, I would say... And believe me, I'm meeting people at their doors again all over the district. And uh, everyone is concerned about uh, the unhoused and making sure that we can have this compassionate but determinative approach to addressing the crises and bring people inside on a path to wellness and stability. uh, And also so that people can experience safe, clean sidewalks. And those are not mutually exclusive principles. And right. so I think that's what Angelinos expect to see of, of us. And that's, we're doing that. Uh, and also just, there's a, a very general unease and anxiety about public safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're addressing that as well. And again, one of those, it's not an either or, um, during the summer of protest in 2020, I was one of the leaders on reform for, uh, you know, armed response from, from the police department. Uh, the LAPD officers are, are my friends. Uh, I, I've, I've worked with police officers all these years, but I also know that we can always do better. And my unarmed response pilot program in Hollywood has been very well warmly received from everyone, the police department, constituents, uh, advocates for the unhoused. And so it's... The pilot project is looking good. So if someone sees someone experiencing an episode who might be unhoused, instead of an armed response, um, I have uh, outreach practitioners who are very professional dealing with that person instead. And with the potential of bringing them inside and putting them under a roof, instead of dealing with it as, as a crime when it's not a crime. Right. So those are the tough things that we're doing right now. And My constituents want safe neighborhoods. They want to feel safe where they live and where they work. And I want the same thing for them. And you don't do that by abolishing the police department. You do that by supporting our brave women and men and bringing in um, innovations that that lessen the likelihood of uh, an unwarranted shooting. So, you know, reform, in other words, and, and we're doing that. We're, we're moving on dual tracks.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's another thing that um, I always sort of have this, I don't know. I get baffled when someone says uh, completely defund police. And I'm thinking, really? <laughs> do you really want to do that? Do you know what that would mean? Yeah, uh, I see, it's, a, it's a balance that we have to you know, a strike to uh, reform and educate and, and do better, as you said. I mean,
0: if, if there were no, if there was no police department, what would happen to the bank robbers and the thieves and the, the, the rapists? And because they're out there, it, you know, they, they just, it, it just is. It's, it's, it's a, not the majority of people are good, respectful, but, but I can tell you that there are, there's a proliferation of firearms that are in the trunks of cars driving on city streets right now. I mean, so we can't be naive about this. We have to be sensible and reasonable. People want safe neighborhoods and they also want reform at the same time. And we can absolutely do both and we are.
1: It's true. Um, Mitch, before we go, uh, if you're talking uh, directly to your constituents, those that'll be voting this year, (laughs) what would you like them to know? What would you like to tell them?
0: I would say that I love this city so much, it's given me everything I could have ever hoped for or dreamt of as a young man, I love my work, I have a public safety agenda and not a political agenda and there is a huge difference between the two. I keep politics out of my decision making, I know my neighborhoods, I know my blocks that I represent, I know the people that I represent, I know the organizations. That I represent and I couldn't be more proud uh, to work with each and every individual and group build consensus. uh, Be at your service and pull the levers of government to make things happen that improve your quality of life, I know the women and men of the city of Los Angeles workforce my Labor friends my business friends and it takes all of it to make this city work better. The nonprofits, the volunteer corps, uh, it all has to work in concert. And you cannot accomplish good things if you see everything through a political lens. You've got to see things through a public service lens. So I I hope to have the privilege and honor of representing the 13th for another term because we're going to do incredible things over the next four and a half years.
1: I have a feeling that you will. Uh, Mitch, thank you. Thanks for being on the show, and uh, maybe we'll talk again before uh, before November.
0: I would I would love to, Vic, and um, we'll, we'll circle back after the June primary because I, I I'm very optimistic, and I'm working toward that victory in June.
1: Indeed. Thanks again, Mitch.
0: Thanks, Vic. Thanks for all you do as well. Really appreciate being here.
1: Thank you. That was L.A. Councilmember Mitchell Farrell, someone I've known for many years uh, and I admire very much um, personally and his work and service to the community. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the little Armenia gateway, which uh, he spearheaded, uh, which will be premiering uh, this year. Uh, Mitch, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I hope to speak with you again soon. The Blunt Post with Vic. Councilmember Bob Blumenfield is a graduate of Duke University and the UCLA Anderson School of Management. He was elected to the Los Angeles City Council in March 2013 and re-elected in 2017. He represents the third district which spans the northwest portion of Los Angeles in the San Fernando Valley, including the communities of Canoga Park, Reseda, Tarzana, Winnetka, and Woodland Hills. Prior to his election to city council, Council Member Blumenfield served in the California State Assembly from 2008 to 2013. Council Member Blumenfield, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic this morning. How are you today?
2: I'm doing, doing really well, and, and I'm so glad to be here with
1: you. Well, thanks for being here. Um, You know, every election cycle, we we say this, that this is is a really important one, and then we're back at it again. Um, I just wanna know in general first, uh, what your impression is as to where we are in this, hopefully, uh, sort of recovering from COVID or transitional period from the sort of the toughest part of COVID uh, era, not just as a nation, but uh, Los Angeles, as well as your own district, which is uh, District 3. Yes,
2: District 3, which is really the West San Fernando Valley. I represent uh, communities like Reseda, Winnetka, Canoga Park, Tarzana, Woodland Hills, uh, that area of the Southwest San Fernando Valley. But in answer to your question, where are we in COVID? I mean, I, I hope, and pray that we are at the end and that we're looking at COVID in our rear view mirror. Um, but of course, there's no way for us to really know that. There's been a couple of times where we thought we were going there and then a new variant comes out. But, um, but we have to move, you know, at some point, you know, from pandemic to endemic and, and re- recognize that, that we're going to live with COVID, but what, to what extent and how that's going to look. So as a, as a city, we are starting that process of toggling off some of the restrictions that we put, a, put on, on and in place during you know, the beginning of COVID and, and throughout. Uh, some of which, some of these restrictions are clearly no longer needed. Some of them are questionable, questionable about whether they're needed and, and some we still need. So we're working on that process uh, and, and hopefully as the caseload goes down, uh, we'll be able to move faster and faster on that. But certain things, like uh, you know, I had put in place and put a motion forward, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, about senior shopping hours, when it was a um, a real issue for seniors who, who couldn't you know nuzzle you know nudge their way to the front of the line when the shelves were barren, who were high, at high risk. It made sense to give them a special time to shop. Well. That's not really needed at this point because the shelves aren't barren. Uh, People have learned how to mask. Uh, We have vaccines, Uh, so and 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 at this point, none of the supermarkets are even enforcing that anymore. So that's that's sort of the easiest, low-hanging fruit. And there are other things like that, but we need to we need to work our way through them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You have you know when I was sort of uh, reading up on you a little bit. of course, I knew you, but not extensively. I came across a very unique program you have. Uh, I should uh, This is in your bio, but listeners, if you're just tuning in, uh, Councilmember Bloomfield's been a uh, council member of District 3 of L.A. for about nine years. Before that, he was an assembly member, and you have this uh, program called Bobcats, which yes. is very unique, and it's very interesting and you know, very dynamic. If you, if you can tell us a little bit about that.
2: Sure. And what it stands, a, a, a cat in our in my acronym is a community action team. And because my name is Bob, we call them Bobcats. Right. And uh, I started this actually when I was in the state assembly. And the idea is to harness the power of the community and of volunteers around specific issues. You know, it's important as an elected official, you can't do anything by yourself. You need to have a good staff. But even much more than that, you need, to have, you need to figure out how to harness the power of the community to really be a full force multiplier and get a lot done. And uh, I've tried to do that in a number of different ways, but through these Bobcats, where around a particular issue, we set up a, a community action team to figure out how do we take action on this issue in the West Valley. And we set one up uh, early on about domestic violence, and that all folks in the community who were interested in that issue, we got together and we looked to figure out how, where we could have value added. And in that case, the value add came from being a convener and bringing together some of the groups that really never spoke to each other and putting a summit together. We did that, uh, have another community action team around economic development, where we get a lot of the local business folks, but we don't want to be another chamber. So we figure out how do we, how do we have value add? Uh, and then one of the probably the the, the longest running and, and 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 I don't I don't want to say most effective but the one that's probably done the most visual uh, things is is my emergency preparedness bobcat. Uh, now to understand this bobcat, you have to understand a little bit about me as well because part of my political consciousness was was and my my fanaticism about being prepared for emergencies was seared during the 1994 earthquake. I was, at that time, I was working for Congressman Howard Berman, and uh, I was working for him in Washington when the earthquake hit and destroyed our district office, destroyed, you know, the valley. People had these these fears that the world would, that the valley would become a ghost town and uh, lots of very real fears. But um, we were able to get the largest aid to a, to a district district. At that point in history it was $14 billion worth of aid. And uh, after that, my life changed. I spent the next year and a half working with with homeowners and and renters and business people trying to help people get their lives back together through SBA and FEMA and all the rest. So I got very focused on emergency preparedness. So when I first got elected, that was one of the first Bobcats I wanted to form was one dealing with emergency preparedness. And so we've, we've gotten a number of very active uh, community members to be involved with this, so much so that they've set up an office within my office that they come to regularly. Uh, and we have, uh, among other things, probably the most unique thing is, and, and we spun, they spun off a nonprofit, and uh, is we have these warehouses uh, that we forward deploy in the district that we fill up with emergency supplies. Uh, I'm probably the only elected official that I know of in the nation that has uh, basically warehouses full of supplies. And and the group works together through a system of barter to keep all of those supplies fresh and, and active. And this has been incredibly important during a number of disasters. Like when the Woolsey fire hit, we were able to get all of the Red Cross shelters in the area, supplies, emergency supplies within an hour because we already had them deployed. Uh, during the pandemic, when there was short supply on ppes and and uh, hospital gowns and those kinds of things we had a warehouse full of stuff and we were just giving it away and we had very little restrictions is that when uh, and, you become
1: and, everyone's best friend uh, yes in some uh, ways elected officials yeah, best
2: friend. i guess politically that's not a bad thing either but uh, uh and, but it also helped with um with food you know we we have a lot of non perishables uh, that are ready for emergencies but you know, people didn't think about this, but when the pandemic hit and the supermarkets closed, a lot of the food banks in the area, um, their main source of donations dried up because the supermarkets didn't have excess food, which is what they usually gave. And and before they could figure out how to get to that next step, there was this, this period of time where they were really hurting. Uh, and we were able to come in at that point and say, well, we have a warehouse full of stuff and we brought, you know, truckloads, pallets of food uh, to various groups that needed it in that critical junction uh, when sort of the, their supply chain ended and before they figured out how to, how to get a different supply chain up, up and running. Uh, so I'm very proud of the uh, emergency preparedness Bobcat and the team that has, you know, figured out very creative ways to help with uh, emergency preparedness. And in addition to the warehouses, they do other things uh, in terms of, you know, preparedness, events and and you know trainings and that kind of thing but it's
1: a very active group it's a great example of you know that don't sit and wait for your elected official to have a magic wand to just solve everything you know get in action it's a partnership it's a community partnership if you want these issues uh, resolved whatever your strength is there's a bobcat out there that you can join and put your strength or uh, interests um, to use good use. And, and if there's not
2: a Bobcat, like anybody who has a particular interest, I'm always happy to start a new one. Right. You know, and, and we have little ones that start for a little while and then they, they, you know, the, the interest wanes, but you know, that's the beauty of it. It's just a, it's just a tool to, to engage, engage community and volunteerism and, and. And being the solution.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I also was reading about, uh, you know, I call it, you know, I prefer that to use the term unhoused, but homelessness issue is a big thing in in LA, uh, certainly in the Valley, California, and I don't think that it's a just an LA issue or California issue. I think it's a national issue, and yeah. it's it's a it's an issue that's more than just about uh, homelessness, quote unquote, but has to do with um, you know disparity in 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 earnings and income and. The disintegration of middle class and all of that that's led to this but uh, whatever the cause would be the fact is that 50% of us's population lives in California uh, uh, unhoused population lives in California and la of course has a big uh, portion of that and you have um, you know you've done a lot of work about that with with that issue as, as well including your uh, your cabin communities which um, I was looking at some of the the photos—they—they looked—they um, looked so neat. For you know, it's such a great solution for someone to be safe and have a roof over the head and a, and a clean place to, to sleep and live. This is the blunt post with Vic on KPFK ninety point seven FM. I am your host, Vic Girommi, and you are listening to my interview. With LA Council Member Bob Blumenfield. If you can tell us about for, for those uh, listeners who are not familiar, what a what a cabin community is.
2: Yeah, it's it is a it's not a long-term solution, it's a it's but it's a it's a fill-the-gap solution. It's a transitional housing solution. Uh, and what it is, and some people call them tiny homes. I prefer the term cabin communities because. Uh, sometimes when people are t- referring to tiny homes, they're actually talking about small homes with a restroom and a kitchenette. Whereas these cabins are, are 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 much more stark. They're in in the case of the cabins that we've set up in my district, they are eight by eight. They they have a bed that folds down from the wall. Uh, they have heating, air conditioning, and Wi-Fi, and some shelving space. But then. Each cabin is, is in a little is in an area that is fenced in. And within that community of those cabins, you do have a trailer with, with individual restrooms. You have another uh, you know, trailer or cargo container that has uh, laundry facilities and food service and you know, and and service areas where caseworkers can meet with folks. And so you you set up a, a perimeter fence, you have security. Um, but you have these cabins and, and they're designed to help people transition from the streets to whatever their next solution is, whether it's permanent supportive housing, family reunification, uh, shared housing, rental assistance, all, all the number of things. But a lot of times it's, it's when someone is on the street, uh, it's not so easy to go directly from the street to permanent supportive housing because you need to have an ID, you need to have a number of different things. This is a, this is a recognition that the streets can't be the waiting room for permanent supportive housing and these other solutions. For years, that was the model, which is we have homelessness and we have these other solutions, but we have nothing in the middle. Uh, And the downside of that is the people who are waiting would spiral. And, 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 you know, and if you don't, you're living in a tent, you don't have access to services, you're, you're it's going to affect your mental health. You're not going to be able to sleep all sorts of, you know, you're going to have other issues that, you know, drug issue issues may be more enabled. Um, So these cabins are a way to, to get people off the streets into a stable environment where caseworkers can work with them to get IDs and other services and to get to that next step. I think it's a great solution. Uh, It's a temporary solution. It has proven that way in my district, we've set up two of these cabin communities one with 52 cabins the other with 74 but you know like anything else it's not without controversy when we put the first cabin community in my district i had people uh, protesting at my home for almost 6 months two days a week
1: for what reason
2: uh, because they didn't want they were there was fear that these cabin communities would somehow destroy the neighborhood uh-huh. and um, and what i would explain to folks is that You know, right now they're complaining to me about the nuisance issues of, uh, you know, homeless people defecating in the alleyway or of crime or people walking around with shopping carts. And I'd say, look, these cabin communities are designed to prevent those things that no one's going to have to be defecating in the alleyway because they have restrooms. They're not going to be walking around with a shopping cart because they have storage and they have a place to live. Uh, they're, they're not going to look out of place because they have showers and they're going to, you know, they're going to be receiving services. So the same people that you're complaining about that are already in the neighborhood, where would you rather they be sleeping on the sidewalk or sleeping in a contained environment where they're getting services? Not only is that more humane for the people who are suffering and who are without homes, it is better for the, the larger community. Uh, because the the folks who may be causing some nuisance issues in their area will now be
1: in a place where they can actually be improving right. rather than regressing. Right, which is clearly a you know a perfect example of you know take all the homeless people out of my neighborhood. I don't care where you take them as long as they're not in my neighborhood. But here's a solution that you offered, but uh, it just goes to show you can't make everyone happy all of the time. So. Uh, yeah there's always going to be one side that's not happy with the, with the solution. Um, So no, I, I really, I like the, the idea and the concept. And the point is, you know, it's, it's just not a, I hate to call it a problem. Maybe a challenge is a better word, the unhoused. It's, it's not going to solve in a year or two or five. And there, you know, so many different programs and they're all valid, I think. As long as you're doing something to be in the solution and trying different programs, otherwise, you know, it's going to be what it has been, which is uh, years of just debating and it just never goes anywhere. The issue becomes bigger with real estate prices, the way it is rent prices. I mean, what I was reading, uh, uh it was an MIT for, from, all the universities, MIT did a study, came out about a year ago and said, actually it was less than a year ago, that someone making minimum wage cannot afford a one-bedroom apartment in any of the 50 states. Now that's extraordinary, that you can't afford a one-bedroom apartment in Mississippi, Louisiana, Kentucky, you know, uh, you just can't in, in places Let, let alone Los Angeles, right? I mean- you know, possible if,
2: if you can't afford a minimum wage in Mississippi, how are you going to afford it in Los
1: Angeles? In Los Angeles. Yeah. So um, it's definitely not something we're going to solve, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a in a one election year or with one mayor or council member or anything like that. Um, but I want to sort of go to a different direction. You know, as a as a gay man, I I'm interested to hear from elected officials about you know, where we are in LGBTQ rights. Um, you know, of course, we've had some setbacks in the last few years, uh, but most of that has been on a national level. You know, I don't, I can't think of anything, I hope, you know, maybe someone can correct me, but I can't think of anything uh, that's very hyper local that has to do with queer rights uh, that I can ask you about, but I can ask you about something that perhaps it's not relevant to your campaign, uh, and it's certainly not something that you have much control over. However, you are an expert. You used to be on the board of Anti-Defamation League. And I'm sure you're aware of, you know, what's happened in, in Artsakh, the independent Republic of Artsakh and the, the 2020 attack on Artsakh by Azerbaijan and Turkey. Yeah. And um, I know that you're supportive of, of the Armenian American community. A lot of them live in your district. And uh, now seems to be this sort of, let's kick the Armenian season internationally. Um, it's, a, it's a very devastating thing to see, the hostilities and the, the massacres. I mean, there's nothing else to call it. It just keeps, keep, keeps happening. It didn't end in the so-called 44 day war, which wasn't a war, it was a genocidal assault. Um, perhaps I'm asking you to see if you have any words of hope and inspiration uh, for, for your Armenian American constituents and just people who are listening.
2: I mean, yes, I mean, I do think, and, and, and the hope I think comes out of, out of LA and this country where we do, we have a very strong uh, support for our Armenian, for, for Armenia and Armenian Americans, and, and Armenian Americans are making that difference. I went to Artsakh actually a number of years ago. With some of my colleagues, with uh, Paul Kukorian and uh, Adrian Nazarian, and uh, and I, I, as a consequence, I got put on the blacklist for um, of course because because I did visit and um, you know so when I saw you know having been there and met the folks who were there, it just it just broke my heart to see what was happening there. Just um, devastating, devastating, um, you know, because it's not it's. For, uh, for you for a lot of people, it's not just an abstraction, but for me too, now, you know, having been there and broken bread with folks and, um, you know, it's just, it's just devastating. Uh, you know, the world is, we have these, these narratives, these different narratives where people don't seem to communicate. And we're seeing that, you know, obviously in Ukraine and, and what's happening there. Uh, I mean, I think the solution ultimately is, is, figuring out how to break through the narratives and getting, getting, you know, the truth, you know, the Jeffersonian idea that when you put a lot of ideas out there, the the best ideas rise to the top. Well, that only works if people actually get access to information. I like that.
1: I I like that you said that and not some, you know, some people, I think they mean well, but they say things, that's just rhetoric, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't have a solution, but, getting to the truth it may seem basic or simple but it's not simplistic definitely this is the blunt post with vic on kpfk 90.7 fm i am your host vic jerami and you are listening to my interview with la council member bob blumenfield i didn't know you'd been to Artsakh. i just recently uh inter- well i i recently interviewed uh, council member uh, uh farrell and prior to that uh, council member Koretz, Uh, And I asked him this too, so I'd be remiss if I don't ask you, do you you recognize the independent Republic of Artsakh? Yes. No, no, you mean the, um, as an Armenian, yes. No, I mean Artsakh as an independent Republic, which, um, ultimately, they have their own right to self-determination and their own sovereignty, whether they, you know, want to join Armenia is, you know, up to them. Right.
2: No, I mean that that makes sense to me completely. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, we did a council resolution about that as well, I believe. Yeah, um, the City
1: of Los Angeles has recognized the the independent Republic of Artsakh. Uh, yeah, I think no, that I, happened I, in twenty just just last year. I think we did that. Um, I think there was a there was another sort of a I don't know what the word would be. There was another recognition, but. Uh, initially, it was about eight or nine years ago. City of West Hollywood did it um, last year, uh, and so did Burbank. Um, but it's it really it's be, uh, recognizing Artsakh has become genocide prevention because as cities around the world recognize it, uh, it will have more of a standing with the United Nations, therefore more protections. Because right now, it's just you know for. 11 or 12 days now, Azerbaijan has cut off uh, heat and electricity from Artsakh. So people in freezing temperatures, you've been there, you know, it's a very cold, uh, high altitude in the mountains, kind of a small republic. So it's really about saving lives. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that from you. Yeah. Um, but going back to you, um, council member, as we sort of, um, you know, as we approach election, Um, what are some of the key points that you are focusing on and that you'd like your constituents to know that you're addressing those challenges that are more, you know, most important to them?
2: Well, clearly, you know, one of the biggest challenges we're facing is homelessness. Um, And we talked about that already. And I've really been leaning in on that as a, as a council member, both specifically for the district, but trying to create citywide policies that will help us, uh, get out of homelessness and and help get people off the streets and the services that they need. It's in everyone's interest. Uh, And and in my district alone, just this last couple of years, we've stood up two cabin communities I mentioned. We've stood up a bridge home called the Willows, converted two hotels. Uh, We've approved multiple permanent supportive housing units. We've got one that's already in where people are already there. We've got one that's fully constructed, one that's already developed. Uh, and then there's, there's two hotels that are currently now applied for in the district for money from the state for Project Home Key. So we're really trying to lean in uh, you know, on that, uh, as well as trying to make sure that as we do that, that folks are actually getting off the streets, they're getting into the services. And, and in fact, all of the underpasses in my district that used to be sort of the most contentious places because... They are such critical corridors. Um, they're now all all clear. They're, you can now walk through them unobstructed. There's no there's no encampments there. Um, but the homelessness is far from over. You mentioned the, you know the bigger issues uh, that are feeding homelessness, which you know whether that's affordability of housing, whether that's the overall economic inequities. You know there there is you know and 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 the the ubiquitous Cheap uh, drugs, fentanyl, and, and others that have you know pervaded the system. Uh, all of those things are contributing factors, and so we need to not just address the folks who are homeless now, but we need to go after the 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 causes of homelessness, and that's much bigger than the city. Um, and that's this is part of the tricky part about dealing with homelessness is that a lot of the 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 factors are out of the city's direct control that doesn't mean we say we don't do windows we lean in no matter what it is but you know mental health is a county you know all the money flows through the county right but uh but i can't just say that and throw my arms up i have to figure out how do i if i'm not getting the services from the county i have to you know on the one hand i have to lobby the county and push them for more services but on the other hand i have to be creative and we've done that a couple of different ways in my district you know we've Use discretionary money to bring in the San Fernando Valley Mental Health Clinic to have do street medicine, specifically in the district. Um, I put together a partnership with Providence Hospital when they were uh, going doing their upgrades. And usually you get a lot of mitigations from them. I said, look, I want to roll out the red carpet for you guys uh, for this new hospital, but I need you to help me with one thing. And they kind of, no one ever approached them that way. I said, no, one thing. I said, well, what is it? I want you to invest your hospital in helping with the mentally ill and drug addicted population, local population in the area. And to their credit, they came back with a proposal uh, where they partnered with the Tarzana Treatment Center and they invested about a million dollars up front and created this program where they have patient navigators in the emergency room and then some offsite houses where Folks can be referred to directly from the emergency room to those houses where they can get treated for their, both their physical and their mental uh, issues. Uh, you know, immediately after the emergency room, which saves the hospital money because the hospital money pays a tremendous amount in the emergency room. These are frequent flyers and folks who are costing them a lot of money, but it really helps the community. And they this like is the,
1: pro- the Providence Holy Cross.
2: Yeah, well, it's out, actually now they they've merged with Cedar, so now it's Providence. Okay. Uh, Providence Cedars, but
1: um, okay in Tarzana
2: but they okay. like the, they liked this program so much that they extended it to their other two hospitals in uh, Olive of and in Burbank right So now they have these patient navigators in all three of their hospitals in our area uh, and they have these off-site houses and it was going so well that we actually leaned in and, and I pushed the city to get an additional house for this program um, so that they can refer even more people to
1: it. And as, uh, as a, not sorry to cut you off, but as a, as a recovering alcoholic of I've just over 14 years sober, uh, I can vouch that the Tarzana Treatment Centers is one of the best in the country. Um, just, they're,
2: they're great I, and I'm proud that they're in my district and uh, I work very closely with them uh, on a number of different issues. And, and the fact that they partnered with, with Providence on this was, was, you know, is one of the reasons why this is a successful program and a model for other, uh, other hospitals to
1: to lean That's in right it's a big win. yeah it's fantastic any question uh council member that I should have asked you but didn't or anything you'd like to add perhaps a, a call to action and also let them let, let people know how to get in touch with you your website perhaps yeah well and and I was I mean I realized you asked
2: me the question about the issues and I just started with just one I mean other issues I can no, know please too. you know a, another important issue is and it relates, it's kind of a good bookend, because it relates back to what we talked about at the beginning in terms of COVID, is how do we get, as we hopefully see COVID in our rear view window, how do we take the lessons of COVID and and take the good things that we've had to adapt and and implement them to move forward so that we don't just, this isn't just a, a crisis that we have to recover from, but we take advantage of the, the lessons learned. I mean, we pivoted in many good ways at, because of COVID. Obviously, COVID is a horrible pandemic, and there, you know I would have rather we never experienced that, but we did experience it, and we had to make several changes. And some many of those changes, we need to implement more permanently. Things like more contactless connections with the city, uh, doing more online with the city where people don't have to to come in and they share documents in ways that we've never done before. Alfresco dining was a product of, of COVID. Well, we're moving to make that permanent. Uh, I One of the other reactions to COVID is I moved to streamline a lot of the requirements that businesses have to go through in terms of parking and uh, being able to do self-attestation when it comes to uh, architecture and small changes in, in planning. Well, taking some of those innovations and making sure that we don't just go back to the old ways. Yeah. And we figure out how do we move forward, and and make you know not just go back to the old world and the old Los Angeles, but how do we how do we move to that new Los Angeles, uh, and and capture the innovations that happened because of COVID, and 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 come out of the other end better than we
1: were when we started. You're the first elected official I've spoken with that, who's already in the next chapter, like is already sort of evaluating what's happened and the lessons that can be learned, and you know. I know in my head, as you were talking, I was thinking that you're putting together a how-to book, if this were to happen again or not happen, but just, you know, what can we take away from it? So what well, can we take away? How to, but also
2: how, you know, what are those things that, that regardless of a pandemic that we just, we, we learn to do better. And let's, let's apply that and, and, and do it better in the future. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's like the, you know, no, don't let a, never let a, a waste a crisis or, you know, don't, make sure you see what the opportunities are out of that crisis
1: yeah makes sense anything else council member
2: no i mean i i appreciate the opportunity to to speak with you there's there's so many there's so many issues that we could talk about and um you know it's la is such an amazing and vibrant place and i'm i'm so honored and privileged to be part of it and and to work with the community to, to to make it an even better place and and so Thank you for giving me some time today and, and for for really bringing all these important issues to the forefront yeah. as you do.
1: No, thank you for uh, being on program. the show. I hope yeah. to uh, chat with you again before, uh, way before the election. And uh, if you want to give us your URL to your website so people can sort of learn more about your initiatives and get in touch and look at your programs and such.
2: Yeah, uh, at city.org is is my government website you can see a lot of all the great things that we're doing you know uh, whether it's whether it's, it's homelessness whether it's streamlining city it's just bloomingfield at dot lacity.org and if you just go to that you'll you'll see all, of, all the great things that we're doing and and you can sign up for our newsletter too because uh, i'm constantly putting out new and new things about what we're what what we've been up to that week and sort of what what the latest challenges. Are.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Thank you again, Councilmember. I really appreciate it um, and hope to chat with you again soon. Look forward to it. Thanks again, Vic. That was uh, LA Councilmember Bob Blumenfield, uh, who serves the Northwest portion of the San Fernando Valley and who has uh, truly brought some uh, dynamic and uh, innovative, out-of-the-box programs and initiatives to his district. Council Member, thank you very much for being on the show. Uh, I appreciate your time, and I hope to speak with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information... Please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jaramie, at V I C G E R A M I. Thank you.
2: The Blunt Post with Vic.